Hey, everybody, and welcome back to the Skullcast, the premier podcast about Berserk from the community at SkullNight.net. I am your eternal host, Walter, and joining me today for episode 126 are Azil. Hey, everybody. And Grail. Hello. Welcome back, everybody. Uh, normally, we say news, and there is no news to say. So, without further ado, let's start the reread for volume 28 of Berserk. This is a hefty one. I feel like this is one of the ones that usually stays on my desk. Uh, it's like a good seven or eight that usually stay on my desk, and this is this is one of them. So let's start it up. The cover. It's one of the more fan-favorite covers. Uh, intense look from Guts as uh, in, in the Berserk armor mode. Hey, what do we call this thing? What's our official terminology for when he's in the control of the armor? What do you call that? Berserk mode? Yeah, when he's not in control, yeah, we'd call it Berserk mode. I mean, that's a Berserk armor, right? I like it. Berserk mode on, he switches, switches the switch, powers up, got, makes it. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Eyes get red. They do actually get red in this cover anyway. Yeah. Um, what I really like about this cover is the composition. Uh, the fact that the cape kind of swirls up like that and it accentuates the hunched over back. Like it looks like a coiled spring. Like he's ready for action. He's primed and ready for action. Uh, yep. Very intense. The fingers outstretched uh, on the the prosthetic arm. Really, even though now it has fingers. Um, the other thing I like about this is if you look really closely, right at the mouth, where the mouth and the back of it, you can actually see a little bit of skin tone there. Yeah, just a little peak. Yeah, I thought that was a nice little touch, a little detail there. The guts is, you know, back there, of course, and now the real guts. Uh, and you can kind of see where the armor meets the, the the body, which is a nice little neat thing. Yeah. yeah. And also, of course, the moon features prominently here because that's a big deal in this whole volume. So thematically, really, really well done um, on an on-point volume cover that is all thematically relevant to the contents of the volume. That is cool. Which is not I, always the case. No, right. It's, not it's, always. It's, I would say it's... <laughs> Like halfway, usually, you know, not, not even half, I would say, are super related. Maybe yeah. a third? Yeah, more like a third, I think. Yeah. Opening it up, we have the double-sided posters. The first one we see, I don't know about you guys, the first one I see is the boy, Moonlight yeah. Child. The boy in the moonlight. Um, looks like he's lost in thought in this particular picture. Yeah. Uh, or simply just looking enigmatic, which is really what kind of this whole picture evokes to me, is that he's a mysterious boy. Uh, don't know what's on his mind exactly. Looking. It matches up nicely with the cover, too, yeah. because the color schemes and the themes are so similar. Yeah. It's the reflection of the moonlight on the, the, the ocean. I'm assuming it's supposed to evoke the first moment that Casca sees him or finds him on, on the shore like this. Yeah. Yeah. Um, one thing that struck me, and I never really thought about, the, the character design of the boy. By the way, the boy gets introduced in this volume. That's a huge thing. Um, <clears throat> well, this version of the boy, anyway. Is his, his character design, the wild hair, the long hair. You know, you don't normally see long hair on a little child like this. You know, the boy is between three and four years old, I would say. Maybe yeah. maybe a little bit older than that, but around that. I would, I would peg him right at four. 
I would say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. Never had a haircut. Exactly. Never had a haircut. Never needed to be introduced to society or civilization, right? So it's just a it's like if a child grew up in the wilderness and then they had this long, wild, wiry hair. I like I like the, you know, the the thoughtfulness of the character design to make the child look wild by having wild, unkept hair. I think that's a cool Idea. He could have chosen anything for the boy. Could have given him Guts's haircut. That'd be funny. Could have done anything. Yeah. Mm. (laughs) On the other side of this is um, one of my favorite paintings, actually. Uh, This it's the group Guts group heading up to a precipice, uh, presumably because of the seagulls in the sky. They're about to look at the sea because they're about to arrive at the ocean there. Yeah. And Sidro's like, what? Yeah. So it's just on the other side, unseen by the reader, but, you know, they're climbing this precipice. They're about to see the ocean. Um, the little curve on the horizon and the, and the clouds in the sky kind of make you want to peek over it. Like they're all kind of angling in a way that you want to see what's over that next um, over the next precipice there. So this is on my wall, actually. It's the only uh, piece of berserk art that's on my wall. Uh, and I put it up there shortly after Amira passed away, actually. Because I think Mm. it's thematically uh, very appropriate to have these characters, you know, going off into the into the distance to an unknown destination kind of thing. I I really like it, and the color is also, you know, I like it. It 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 lights my room up. It looks really good. Mm -hmm. Nice. I do notice that the uh, the dark horse version of this poster. Once again, the color balance is a little off. It looks more like it's at midnight in the dark horse version, even though it's supposed to be a bright sky. Yeah, um, it looks like like day for night uh, blue filter. Yeah, but in the Japanese version, the one that's on my wall, is much more uh, sea green, I guess, for the landscape and and you know light blue for the sky. So it's uh, it's a little, it looks a little bit different emotion when you look at it. I think uh, feeling atmosphere is the word I'm looking for. A little different. Yeah. Turning to the preview image. We have uh, the front gate. What do you call that? What's the terminology for that? I think front gate is appropriate. Okay. It's the front gate of the city of Rattanus. And we see uh, that it's surrounded by soldiers. And I could be wrong, but it looks like the apple peddler in the to- lower left there. Yeah, that's right. Okay, cool. He's back, people. He's back. At least the one looks that, uh, like so- him. Could be someone else, but it does look like him. Yeah, that hat... I only, I only associate that with, like, two people, like <laughs> Nico <laughs> yeah. and this guy. My man. Um, yeah, so this is cool. Uh, it kind of tells you where the story's headed to a human city. We haven't seen a lot of these in this era of Berserk. The last time we saw, like, a really big city location for the group was, boy, I guess, like, Wyndham, right? I'm trying yeah. to think. Oh, I guess, I guess you could say I'll be on. Sort of. Well, it's not really a town. It's a more I mean, of a settlement, iso- I guess. Yeah, it's an isolated yeah. monastery with uh, refugee camps. Yeah. But yeah, this is the first time we've seen a city in the wild that didn't have a bunch of decapitated heads exactly. hanging around. So yeah, yeah. It's a nice. It's a nice change of pace. <laughs> Sorry, I was just coughing, marking down yeah. a cough mark there. Eight thirteen. 
All right, I'll be taking. Uh, oh, actually, before we get started, uh, I usually I usually like to talk about the the place of this volume in the context of the rest of the series, and this is open ended. But I'll start. Um, to me, Volume Twenty Eight is telling a couple different stories. Uh, the first is about the cost of continuing to wear the armor, because the volume just before this, the armor was introduced. Well, I guess Twenty Six gets introduced. You're right; it flows mm-hmm. into Twenty Seven. You see the cost to Guts immediately of wearing the armor. But, you know, this is a powerful new upgrade, and it allows Guts to take on stronger and stronger foes. But we see in this volume in particular that it puts the group in jeopardy. Uh, the second story this tells is about the coming storm in Vertanis. And just between these things, it introduces the boy in the moonlight, who's likely uh, one of the missing puzzle pieces for how we can kind of envision the series going towards a climax in the end. Mm. Uh, it's a seemingly omnipotent being with mysterious power who helps Guts and Cask along their journey multiple times. This is the first uh, directly that we've seen with this boy. Yeah, I'd say it's a, I mean, the word that comes to mind is pivotal uh, from learning that Casca can be cured. And so they're not just journeying to Helfelm with no specific goals, except there they'll be safe. But actually, she can be healed. Her condition right. can be cured. Then we get the introduction of the boy, like you mentioned, and we accelerate on the cushion side of things, uh, which ends up being a pretty big conflict with big repercussions at the end for the world and everything. So, yeah, we'd say pivotal and, of course, Yamal, like you mentioned, but also a lot of development for the group. Uh, I wouldn't say it's a like, conclusion of the whole group dynamics because it goes on even after that. But I feel like we, we how to say, again, we've got some strong beats for, for each uh, character's development and their uh, general dynamics uh, in this volume. I have a question about one of those points, actually. I didn't. I hadn't been reading episodically at this point in the series, so I'm wondering what the thought was before it was announced that Casca could be cured at Elfhelm. What, what were there any thoughts like? Oh, maybe that could happen in the future, or what that's was a the that's a good question. Actually, I know Walter. You, do you remember like the prevalent thought at the time? Not specifically, not I can't pull up an individual post, but in my head, I feel like they were going to eventually address Casca's sanity, but not to get, I did not expect so clear a definitive solution to come like, in the, in the way that he does here, where Skull Knight basically says, yes, it's possible, and it's going to happen with this particular person in Elfhelm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel like it's, I can't be sure because it's what, just I don't really remember, but I feel like I expected it to happen anyways, that she might be cured or her condition might be addressed uh, or would be addressed in a way that would be resolved. I know, I remember that a lot of people uh, expected Gus to just dump her there and then <laughs> move on to their revenge. And a lot of people, or at least it sticks to me that way because I had to argue with them at the time on the forum, basically, and a lot of people were very dead set on that. They are just going, it was just a chore, and even reading it was a chore, because, yeah, he's just going to dump her on the island, then he can move on to what actually matters. And at the time, I was like, I mean, that's no no way, that can't be 
It's not going to happen. It's never going to happen because, like, think back to volume uh, 17, what he said, he would never leave her alone again, all that stuff, uh, what she means to him, and even with the armor, with his developments, that he comes back because of her or thanks to her rather. So all of that meant it, it didn't make sense. But still, many people thought like that. And I feel like even after we got news that she might be healed, uh, because of the Skull Knight's word, which we'll mention, uh, people still were like, eh, he's just gonna dump us there, and then he can go on for the revenge, and he can, <laughs> he can fuck Farnese too. And, uh, <laughs> well, I, I, I sort of understand, not that I agree with it, but I understand, I kind of mind read people sometimes. I can sort of understand that the, the basic thought that they not, they weren't sure how the restored Casco would fold into this new mix, this new group, what her role might be in the story moving forward if it was Casca again, or what, who would that be? So instead of grappling with that uh, being a new element to the story, it's just like, nah, no, 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 just shove it off, rub it under, the, sleep it under the rug, and then Guts can continue with what matters, which is decapitating Griffith. More gore! Yeah. Well, yeah, I feel like also uh, part of that is that during the Golden Age, Casca uh, and Guts, uh, how to say, they have their differences, and she she's antagonizes him at some points, sometimes unfairly, sometimes fairly, and a lot of people at the time also, maybe because they were young, I don't know, but uh, resented her for that. They felt like she was basically too bitchy or... That's a common uh, refrain even now, I would yeah, say. Yeah, yeah, it's just, uh, you know, but actually, I mean, she's her own person and she's got her own emotions and goals and so on. And like not every character has to be in love with the protagonist and think everything he does is great, right? Right. In fact, the dynamic between them was what made the series really interesting in that way for, for that time. Yeah, yeah. And also, I, I mean, Guts is does bite off more than he can chew and he is often headstrong and stupid and... Casca is one of the few characters that calls him out on that. So, yeah. I mean, I think it's I think it's okay for her to yell at him from time to time, even if he is the main character. Yeah, oh, it's especially. A, yeah. Now go ahead. I was saying especially for that reason. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's yeah. actually one of the things I was looking forward to is for him to be to do one of his classic. Shuke says, "Don't do it; it's too dangerous." Is like, oh, I don't care, and then for uh, restored Casca to be like, "Shut the fuck up." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, don't. Actually, let's do my way instead. I guess would be like, eh, all right. Yeah. All right. <laughs> so I was, I was uh, really looking forward to that because if you think back to things like uh, when he was trying to go in uh, to see Griffiths when he was uh, visited by nobles and she punched him in the face, mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. Yeah. I mean, those are great moments to me. Uh, because uh, Guts is a kind of character that doesn't really take no for an answer. Uh, you know, he's got to be compelled. I mean, it shows with Griffiths when he tries to recruit him, he's like, no, and he has to compel him for that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and yeah, Cascade was one of the few characters who actually managed to get him to do what she wanted, or at least to listen to reason. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, obviously it makes sense for her to come back, but again, for it to be so explicitly stated was, abs- I mean, to me, it was a surprise, at least thinking back to that time. Yeah. Uh, and it does set a pretty clear course for the next several volumes, you know, dozen or so. And to get, it kind of brings us to where we are right now in the series uh, with Casca back. Uh, but the next, what's over that next horizon is what we didn't get to see. Yeah, it gave us a great insight. Uh, I feel like this volume specifically allowed us to 
map out uh, what mm -hmm. the destination would be for the journey. Not, of course, not very clearly with every detail. And, and of course, every step along the way, we didn't predict. And that's the beauty of Berserk when you think about it is like from that volume on, uh, we were about to say, or at least I was about to say, well, they're going to get to the island. Uh, Casca is going to be restored. They're going to have some interpersonal drama, and then they're going to set out on, on a, a subsequent mission to to face uh, Griffiths and so on. And you you could have that uh, basic premise, but every other thing, including Fantasia and huge developments and so on, you couldn't predict. So it's interesting to have that uh, how to say that vague idea of the distance uh, of the distant point, but not every step along the way. Right, a roadmap uh, and, and a Skull Knight tends to do that for readers and for Guts, is to provide him a basic roadmap for what's to come, a destination in mind. The talk that they have in Volume 28 is in many ways similar to their talk in Volume 18 in terms of him giving him an overall picture of what's happening in the background and yeah. also giving him kind of a goal. Mysterious and obscure enough that the reader doesn't quite grasp what's going on until it mm -hmm. actually goes on. Yep. So, uh, I'll take the first episode, uh, which is episode 237, Proclaimed Omen. Uh, Shirke is distracted as she looks out at the moonlight over the ocean. Guts visits her, and they end up talking about the connection of the ocean and the astral world, with a sudden outburst from Shirke about the recent death of Flora. Their talk is interrupted by the Skull Knight, who warns Guts about continued use of the armor. Guts will continue to lose his senses if he does so. But he retorts that he's not going to let the armor take him over again, and Shirke backs him up on that. Skull Knight confirms that the armor was once worn by him and that Guts should not make light of it, regardless of what its resolve is. He also says that Griffith targeted Flora because she was dangerous to him, because she was a powerful magic user who could confront him. At the mere mention of the Falcon possibly being in the area, Guts almost loses control. Skull Knight leaves Guts with a final promise saying that their journey to Elfhelm would lead them to the leader of the elves, the sovereign of the flower storm, who may be able to restore Casca's mind. Um, it's a lot to say. We've kind of alluded to a little bit of it in the previous summary of the volume about Skull Knights, you know, laying a roadmap for guts and the characters and the readers really uh, for the future. But the one thing that my mind always goes back to in this particular episode is this interplay between guts and Shirke. Um, most of the episode is about Skull Knight and, you know, his news, but it's, it's a small moment for Gus and Shirke to draw closer as companions and for the reader to see that moment. You know, their relationship has changed quite a bit already since they were first paired up. You know, she's come to see that he's not just, you know, the lunkhead that he first appears to be to anybody, you know, a big guy with a big sword. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he knows that she's got a deep understanding of the world uh, that he knows nothing about. But beyond that, it's also he cares for her. Uh, and this little moment where, you know, Shirke has this crush that becomes evident when Eva Lyra kind of blurts it out in this really funny way. Um, but they have this, she, they kind of share this crying moment. You know, Guts is not crying, but Shirke opens up enough to kind of embrace Guts, which was a real surprise. If you really think about her character, you know, she's someone who is outwardly mature and he is someone who is this cold seeming older man. You wouldn't think they'd have this soft moment between the, the two of them, but, you know, it, it feels very natural for them. Mm. Yeah, it's becoming a real friendship and not just a like a partnership of convenience sort of thing. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I, th- I think it's a key moment for the development of their relationship. Really a transition, like you said, to not just being uh, people who get along because they have to, but actual companions. And like, she opens up when she cries, but he also lowers his guard a little, even when right. he admits that the the sea uh, salty air is uh, hurting his wounds and so on. Right. Yeah, it's like the that kind of moment. That's a small little thing, but it feels like a very genuine shared moment. Like they're, they're shared hardship together, even though it's a small thing. Uh, it's the kind of thing that builds a real friendship in, in real life, not just stories, right? Uh, yeah. But there aren't a lot of these little small moments where you can actually see the granular level of how a friendship forms, this kind of thing. I thought that was a very mm-hmm. cool uh, yeah. to see that between those two. There's also, uh, it's slight, but when they're talking about the sea, uh, it's kind of a reference uh, setting up what's to come afterwards when Gus uses the armor, both what she says and what he says about it. Mm-hmm. And it's very subtle because it's in the midst of this conversation, like we said, that's about character development, but it also serves to uh, lay the ground for, for the development afterwards. So I, I found that interesting. This uh, moment from Eva Lyra where she's elaborating about what she's feeling between Shirke and Guts, it's one of my favorite Eva Lyra moments. I like how she's uh, she's saying that Guts, you know, he's a lot better than the other two, at least, you know, which is already <laughs> concluding Shirke's, you know, whole romantic pursuits for her life from whoever happens to be in their midst at this time. I thought that was really yeah. funny. And Guts's reaction to that, too, was funny, too. Yeah. He's like, sort of used to it. Yeah, yeah, he's so blase because he's so used to Puck. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um. I think Flora has already said so, but for Shirke to reiterate it, it was interesting. The fact that she says, for those of us who live in both worlds, death is not an end, but an emergence into a new, greater existence. So Flora's death, as we know, is a transcendence of life. Um, and, you know, we sort of see that. I think when she departs, she says something similar. Uh, and to see it again here, and then to know that through uh, Danon and even Gedflin, that, you know, Flora was still making contact with others in the afterlife as well. Just kind yeah. of underscores that. Yeah. That was a really sweet moment too, because you really feel like Shirke was kind of reading from the book of yeah. what she knows as a witch, but then having had the real life experience to contrast against that, you could see that she was really struggling. And I thought that was a great thing to show. That's a good way to put it. Yeah. Because she knows how she's supposed to react to this. She, she, she even says it like, Regarding death as something that uh, is a transformation, and yet now having the personal experience of it changes that for her. You know, she can't quite contain how she's feeling about it. She can't yeah. be so impersonal about it. She's getting street smart, not just book smart. <laughs> Feel bad for her. Yeah. Um, Guts and Skull Knight's greeting, you know. Guts says, still surviving, huh? And then Skull Knight says, I could say the same for you. I thought that's a nice tough guy moment between those two. They have such a... <laughs> you know, superficially adversarial relationship when they first greet each other. Like, Gus always has a scowl on his face. It's so funny to me that <laughs> they're, they, are com- they are companions. They are friends, but they're too tough to admit it, basically. Both of them are, you know? I don't think they are really friends. It's more like, uh, well, I mean, it's what God says. He owes him. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Skull Knight uh, does him favors and renders him service and saves his hide, but... They're not exactly friends in the way like How about allies. The group. Yeah, allies definitely. Sure. Yeah, but yeah, they've got that kind of. I mean, Gus doesn't want to, how to say, to show weakness. I guess. I guess that's that's the way he would be 
towards someone he sees more as a rival or something like that. You know what I mean? Yeah. Where he doesn't want to show uh, any weakness. And the Skullite is like, I mean, he's a Skullite, right? He's been around. He knows everything. He's been in Gus's shoes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, more so really... than we knew at this time, really, that they yeah. were that connected. Uh, which you know leads us to one other thing about this is that Shirke asks Skull Knight about uh, the armor, and Skull Knight confirms that it was something that he once wore. And then Shirke asks, "What was his relationship to Flora?" He says, "We were just like you two are now, friends." Uh, you know, which tells us a lot. You know, yeah. we knew already that they were friends, obviously, uh, but the fact that there was a witch. Uh, and there was a, a, a guy in this armor a thousand years ago. You know, it it sets things in motion for readers that, you know, we still talk about now. We talk about <laughs> hundreds of podcasts ever since. Yeah, it does reveal a lot, I feel mm-hmm. like. Uh, more so than people might have understood at the time. I don't know. But, uh, yeah, it was a big deal. Uh, mm. shedding some light that, uh, again, like you said, we recently, very recently, got slightly more information about yeah. in our film, but not much more. Uh, one thing, uh, you know, I usually notice things in these rereads. There's two things that really stuck out to me. I was like, huh, I never quite realized that before. Is you know that from what Gut says in the later episodes in this volume that you know, it's a struggle for him to get on wearing the armor, and he was still recovering. We already heard from the last episode, yeah, uh, from the big battle. But in every single panel that Guts is in in this episode, he's sweating. You can see like sweat drops over all over his face, mm. even when he's just standing. He's the guy is just. It's a struggle just to walk around right now, even even with the armor on. Mm. He's straining when he shouldn't even be straining, which I thought was fascinating. Yeah, well, I mean, those uh, sweat drops can also indicate, like, you know, state of mind or something like that. Mm, it's, every, just... it's every panel, though. I mean, like, even before Skull Knight even appears. Yeah, okay. It's, it's, anyway, it's, it, was, it was surprising. Like, even when he's sitting there on the beach with Shirke, he's sweating. Yeah, yeah, yeah um, I get what you mean. The other thing is when Guts asks Skull Knight about um, why the Apostles attack Flora's mansion... You know, Shirke has like a surprised moment. And you, know, you can interpret that because she's not saying anything. You can interpret it a number of ways. I took it that, you know, Guts actually had a question about the motives of the apostles. And Shirke, I'm not sure Shirke knew much about apostles or anything about apostles. Or that Guts might even be able to imply who their leader was. Actually, she has to know who the leader was. She's one that stooped in on them in volume 22. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyway, her reaction to that. Um, she's surprised that Guts was asking about the apostles attacking the old lady's mansion. Uh, I guess now I'm, my conclusion is I don't know why she was so surprised by that. But my initial conclusion was she didn't know that Guts knew that there was a particular force out to get Flora. I think it's more simple than that. Is that he's asking a question she also wanted an answer to. But he's, oh, yeah. very, he's very direct in the way he does. And so it's startles her because, uh, of course, she's very directly concerned, right? That makes more sense. That's direct, yeah. And I also, I mean, I don't know if she really realized uh, it was Griffiths behind it. She knows, of course, that he's gathered apostles, uh, but, uh, yeah, I don't know. Mm. I don't know if she'd really, how to say, dwelled on it and, like, probably a painful memory, you know, not the kind of thing you necessarily want to, to start deducing 
stuff from. So it's also, I feel like that whole conversation, uh, is, is uh, kind of tough on her. That's why it gets her in tears almost when, when this kind of yeah. explains things. There's this intense moment when Guts hears uh, the Falcon is nearby, or he could be nearby, and he gets the sensation that the beast is basically sneaking up on him, coming up the cloak, and it has the sensation of as if it's something like riding through deep water. You can see the, a form in the water, right? Like a yeah. shark almost. <laughs> yeah. Coming up the waves, and then it's about to bite his head, and then he has to... She, Shirke says Guts, and then he kind of like grabs his shoulder as if to like swat it away. Yeah, he sl- mm. he slaps uh, slaps the cape to to make right. it go. Right, yeah. It's it's uh, I mean, like you said before, it's funny because just seconds ago, he and Shirke were like, "Yeah, no problem. <laughs> I won't lose control again." And they are just by hearing the word Falcon, he almost uh, loses control. So it mm-hmm. goes to show uh, how dangerous the armor is, uh, unlike what he's saying. Yeah, and. Um while Skull Knight doesn't directly address it, I don't know. There's something about the way that he transitions from that moment of weakness from Guts to say, to protect or contend, you'll continue to query this. It's like he knows that there's a fight within Guts, you know, and he he acknowledges that this is, he's walking a thin line by wearing this armor. Yeah, for sure. Uh, the last thing I wanted to say was um, Sovereign of the Flower Storm is introduced by name here for the first time. And we get two really quite salient details. Uh, one is that we see a little bit about Skellig. You know, we see it off in the distance, kind of between these two giant waves. I love that picture of Skellig. Like, kind of, it's just just beyond this really intense ocean wave. You can see a the outline of a, a mountain on the, mm-hmm. the, the sea land finally. Which we, of course, we won't see that from their twelve volumes, but still, that's pretty cool. And the association with cherry blossoms which we see whenever the name is talked about uh, two things that are very, you know, relevant uh, once we finally get introduced to the character. Yeah. Well, there's also the fact the name uh, yeah. is based on the word uh, Hanafubuki, which means uh, like, I mean, a s- storm of uh, falling uh, petals. And, and that specifically refers to uh, cherry blossoms uh, in Japan. You know, when it's a season, there's uh, a lot of, uh, Blossoming and they fall heavily, and so yeah, that's referred to as Hanafubuki. So for Japanese people, it evokes pretty clearly uh, what it is in the end. Yep. Uh, the one lingering thing, I don't want to dwell on it too much uh, because it's fairly abstract, and that is what Skull Knight says about existing outside the story. Mm-hmm. I feel like it's you know it's very similar to where we already had assumed guts would be in terms of being someone in the interstice that was capable of making these strikes. Uh, you know, just like Skull Knight himself, he's not well someone who's bound to the physical world in the way that all humans are. By existing in both worlds, he becomes uh, a little bit more able to, you know, be the jumping fish, the leaping fish. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a. Uh, I- I think it's interesting to point it out because that line has often led to confusion about, uh, I mean, uh, throughout the years, a uh, line about exi- Griffiths existing beyond the principles of the physical world. And uh, yeah, I think it's simple. is that he's unchallengeable by the people inside the physical world. Uh, and that's like a character challenging the writer of, of a story. I, I think it's a clever metaphor for the way the idea of evil and the good hand orchestrate events 
in a way that's extremely difficult to go against. And that's why, for example, the Skullite has to strike at the junction of times. And that's why being in the interstice makes a difference for guts versus just being in the corporeal world like any other rube. Mm-hmm. So uh, I think it's a great metaphor. But yeah, it's been often misremembered and deformed and misquoted. And so people uh, got confused about it. Yeah, I think if you read it on its own, and the implication is that guts is, himself is outside the story. But he and the Skullnet are still beholden to that story, you know? Like you said, though, they can strike at particular times, the junction of times, and still make a difference, as we saw, have seen many times. Um, but it's not a final, absolute, binary thing. It's not one or not, you know? That's yeah, the sure. part where I think it leads to con- confusion. Mm. Well, I mean, I don't know. I think, I think you're overestimating people, or maybe I'm... Uh underestimating them but I think the confusion is just people don't pay attention and don't think too much <laughs> yeah. that's it for me very loaded episode it's one of the you know everyone knows this I'm sure everyone who's read the series has probably done what I've done which is pour over you know the Skull Knight scenes because they're very dense and everything he says requires some parsing to really think about so yeah it's one of those episodes I've read a lot and uh, if I overlooked anything it's just because it's I must I've almost memorized that episode, so I take a lot for granted uh, whenever those episodes come by. Yeah, I would have just uh, maybe a couple notes mm-hmm. to add. Uh, the first is that the reason given uh, for the attack on Flora's domain is only partly true. Uh, the fact uh, which must have been must have seemed more dangerous to Griffiths than an army of ten thousand, which uh, goes uh, ties to to the sentence we were talking about just before. Uh, we learn afterwards, much afterwards, that destroying the tree itself was also right. part of the goal. Right. Uh, and it's worth noting because, in a way, I think it shows the limits of the Skullnet's knowledge yeah. regarding the garden's plans. So mm. that's interesting to me. Uh, another one would be when he talks about Casca, when he mentions to, to Guts, uh, I think Dakos translates it as uh, your partner. Uh, in Japanese, he used the word Tsuriai which is used or can be used when you refer to your spouse. So I thought hmm. that that was interesting uh, because of, you know, people often, same thing over the years where, you know, talking about is Casca really God's lover, uh, blah, 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 that kind of stuff. Uh, is he just going to dump her on skilling and move on? Again, same <laughs> stuff. And I mean... It's not, I don't want to rub it in or anything because the people who had these opinions are long gone from the fandom probably, but it's pretty clear and from the beginning and stays clear throughout the series that yeah, Gus and Casca are like one for each other and it's going to be the way that way to the end of the series. And so here we've, we've got just a little thing, but again, points out that uh, yeah, they are not just traveling companions. Uh, Guts cares for her, and when she wakes up, she cares for him. That's a very helpful detail. I, I read partner and actually wondered that and was yeah. wondering what the... Yeah, pa- partner the is a fine translation for it. I think it's good. Uh, yeah. it, it conveys it uh, well enough. So, mm-hmm. And yeah, maybe last thing is that I, I uh, wanted to point out the abrupt change of atmosphere between uh, the conversation with Shuriki at the beginning and when Guts feels that the Skull Knight is approaching. Mm-hmm. I think it's great. I think it's something Mira also regularly did. To have a scene like that, a quiet little scene, and then suddenly, damn, it changes and something um, pivot to drama, serious stakes, 
Uh, and uh, yeah, so I thought it's effortlessly, you read it, flows like water, but it's mm. very, very well done to me. So just wanted to point that out. Yeah. It's a good point. I mean, there's still a little bit of humor. It's so slight. I think it's either, yeah, it's in this episode or maybe it's the next episode where when Shirke starts talking more to Skull Knight, Guts kind of says like, hey, wait a second, don't steal my thunder or something like that. <laughs> mm-hmm, yeah. Well, yeah, I think uh, it's when they are referring to the Clifford and uh, what uh, that the Skull Knight helped right. uh, them at that time, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's it for my episode. Next up is Azil. All right, then, moving on to uh, The Boy in the Moonlight. So, Guts smiles at the thought that Casca's condition might be cured, but the Skull Knight warns him that her desires might not match his, once everything is said and done. Meanwhile, we see Casca woke up alone to a young child standing naked on the beach, and they stare at each other. When the rest of the group catches up with her, they find her hugging him under her clothes. Shiruke senses a mysterious odd coming from him, and he and Gus also exchange a long glance at each other, interrupted by Casca's general hostility towards Gus. As they return to the cabin, Gus senses something in his brand coming from the cliff above, but isn't sure, and dismisses it. While everyone's happy for Gus, he's dwelling on the scornless words and also looking at Casca, who's feeding the boy like a mother would her child. It garners the attention of the others, but the boy is timid and won't talk. He does consistently eye Guts, though, and we see a cute scene where he gets on his back while Guts is not looking, which leads to an imbroglio where Casca and him both hold the kid together, making them look like parents, something which the group remarks on. As everyone sleeps, Guts is lost in thought, remembering his son, the demon child, and the last time he saw him at the Tower of Conviction inside the Berita Bustle. He figures he's still out there somewhere, wandering in the night, uh, and we cut to a shot of the wave uh, as a crocodile's eye emerges from the water. So that's obviously a, a big episode, um, and there's a, a bunch of things to say about it. So first thing I want to mention, I'm going to keep the big, mo- this big one for the end. Uh, first thing I want to mention is that Gus has a rather subdued reaction to the news about Casca, and I think that's from surprise. He's just taken aback. And that's why he, we see that, that kind of smile and that face he makes. And he's not, I don't know, screaming or anything. And also because Guts is not the kind of guy to do that. <laughs> but yeah, I think it's, uh, he's both shocked and also overjoyed by, by it. But even though he doesn't make an overjoyed face. Uh, also a little, uh, word on a translation they did for the Skull Knight where when, uh, Shuki says, is it true? Uh, Skull Knight replies, Nigon one eye which in Japanese means I won't repeat myself. Uh, they change, they translate it as you have my word, and I feel like that doesn't convey what he actually says. I mean, the Skull Knight is not the kind of guy who, he's speaking to them like a king would speak to a peasant. He's not just saying like, oh, I promise you, you can trust me. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I felt like I needed to point that out. It's more like you heard it, bitch. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> I said, so like this, basically, like I said, it's just, I won't repeat myself. Mm-hmm. So it means when I say something, I say something, don't question me. Yeah. Um, <laughs> also, of course, that famous line, what you want might not be what she wants. So much has been made of this over the years, uh, despite the fact it's vague and non-committal. People drew conclusions. They were like, oh, it sure is going to be this or going to be that. 
since then, we've seen that as we expected on Skullnight.net, uh, Casca still have guts, still wish to be with him. Uh, and I don't think Casca's current trauma episodes uh, are related to, to that line either. Uh, to me, it seems more likely uh, related to the differences that might have arisen about how to deal with their son situation uh, down the line. But yeah, anyway, that was a big deal at that time, and it stayed a big deal for a long time. That line, a lot of people were obsessed with it, and we actually get a call back to it uh, just before they get to the island, and uh, even on the island, as she's cured, Guts uh, still dwells on it. So I feel like it's important to to underline that. Um, same thing goes, maybe to a lesser extent, to Puck not saying anything about the Sovereign of the Flower Storm. Uh, it's kept some people guessing for years. I remember thinking, why didn't he say so? Is he the king? Is he the sovereign? Uh, it ended up just uh, not amounting to anything except just Puck didn't yep. care. I Puck guess. being Puck. Yeah. So it's pretty funny because that those small panels kept a lot of people wondering. Uh, <laughs> and then, of course, finally, uh, Gus and Casca with a boy... It's treated as a funny scene, but it's also sending a very clear message to the reader. Uh, it's an occasion to subtly address both Shirk and Farnes' complex, developing feelings toward Guts as well, something which will go on uh, for a long while henceforth. So again, something uh, worth mentioning to me. Both Shirk and Farnes uh, have feelings for Guts, which obviously are, I would say... Uh, complicated by his relationship with Casca. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, and then, yeah, and of course, obviously, the big deal about this episode is uh, that it kind of gives us a hint about what's going on with the boy. A page was added in the volume for this episode. It's the one where Gats feels something in his brain and he turns around to look at the cliff. So what matters is why it was added and it's to draw attention to the top panel at the beginning of the next page. It shows the transition from the top of the cliff to the inside of the cabin, but what's interesting is what's silhouetted on those rocks. If you look at the top, uh, you can see the profile of a horn and a wing seen from the side, and specifically Zad's horn and Zad's wing uh, against the backdrop of a cloud. So it reveals that Zad was there looking down at what was going on. And uh, yeah, why would that be there? Finding out that detail uh, in 2006 was what led me personally to resolve the dilemma of how Gus and Casca's son could both subsist within Griffiths and be reincarnated as a boy in the moonlight. Because from that scene in this episode, it's pretty clear that he's their son. And mm -hmm. everybody was like, oh yeah, it's gotta be, it's gotta be the son. But we literally see him being transformed into Griffiths in Volume 21, and Griffiths feels his thoughts afterwards, as we see in Volume 22. So how could the two things be resolved, right? How could two uh, be true? And that being there could only mean one thing, uh, despite how unlikely it might seem, that the boy was still fused with Griffiths, and actually he physically transformed into that form that we see on the beach. Uh, and Zod either transported him or followed him to that location. And from that realization, uh, we then quickly deduced on the forum that the full moon was the catalyst for his transformation, 
which informed our understanding for years and years to come. And I'll let you guys comment on this. But I'll say that there was a lot of resistance to that idea at the time. It took years <laughs> for people to come around to it. And even though we got more hints over time, people still didn't want to believe. Actually, I would say it's only in this final episode of Berserk that we finally convinced everybody. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> when it happens, it's, it's actually crazy. Yeah, final episode released is the one that actually yep. gets confirmation for that. Now nobody's complaining about the theory that started mm, 14 years ago, 15, 16, 20 years ago. Six, yeah, 16 wow. years. Damn. Um, a couple things I'll point out. First, just to clarify, Azil said a, a page was added. I want to be clear. The page that was added was not the one that started, that is the basis for the theory. The page simply draws attention to what was always there, even in the episodic release, which is Zod on the hill. The silhouette the silhouette was always there. So that was yeah. not something that Mira retroactively said, oh, I better tease it. No, no. He was always teasing it. But he thought, I mean, we're supposing here, he probably thought that it was very obscure to include such a vital hint in a transitionary panel because, I mean, I don't know about you guys, when I see those little double lines implying a, t a time change and a scene change, mm -hmm. my eyes just kind of go to the next panel. Uh, I don't really focus on the scenery necessarily so much. So I'm assuming in a page like what he did, it makes Guts actually face that cliff and think about it. And he senses something in his brand, which forces readers to kind of think, hmm, what was up there? Yeah. So yeah, drawing attention to it, to be clear. Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, without that would have taken years and years more for probably for me to find oh yeah there's no, something uh, and even there's no reason to look have, up there otherwise yeah and even then i might have dismissed it as eh, probably nothing yeah so to be clear th this theory really started with the reissuing of this episode in the volume form of 28 and the zeal spotted it made a post about it he makes made a really massive post about it uh and that was the basis of it yeah long 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 time ago i remember when when i read that post for the first time and it was like Oh my God, I completely missed that when I was reading it the first time and uh, how helpful that was. To, <laughs> so thanks, S, for, for helping me with that. Uh, I mean, obviously, that's the, that's the big deal here with this added page. But I also like just how the, it smooth, smooths out the transition between how they explain what's going to happen on Elfhelm. Yeah. So that's really cool. I, I feel like that adds a lot. Mm-hmm. And... Uh so go ahead. No, I was just going to say something else is that when you realize that uh, the boy is his son, uh, meaning the same as Demon Child, a lot of things make more sense about his behavior, the way he's looking at guts, and, mm -hmm. you know, he wants to go to him, but at the same time, he's a bit apprehensive. It's uh, it's interesting. It, it really shines a different light on, on things. Yeah, Guts, sorry, the boy and Casca have a very straightforward relationship. But the boy and Guts have a much more complicated history. Uh, and it's a little more adversarial. Uh, so, yeah, I understand the boy being clinging to his mom the whole time throughout these scenes while still being interested in Guts. Yeah. Uh, I was just going to, the last thing I'm going to say about this cliff thing is that, you know, I don't think enough can be said about just how subtle a twist it is uh, to, for Miura to introduce that here. Uh, I mean, I'll even say I think Aziel was probably too perceptive, uh, <laughs> more perceptive than Miura might have bet on readers getting at the, at the moment. But it's one of those things where he took a chance, uh, Mira took a chance, and he's like, I'm going to reveal a little bit here 
uh, so that later the developments will feel like they were building, and they are building. Yeah. Uh, but Azeel just turned on all the lights, the floodlights, and just now <laughs> we can see everything. <laughs> well, um, but it's it's a very subtle move by a writer to tip their hat for something so monumentally huge for the development of the story. I mean, again, I said about the summary of Volume 28. The boy and Griffith being tied together kind of adds an additional fundamental layer to the Casca Guts uh, Griffith dynamic. And it's one that would likely play a role in the conclusion of the story. And yet all of that is revealed with the silhouette on a beach. It's just so crazy to think about. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's uh it's interesting because you you're right in a way that uh it does I mean did he expect but at the same time I don't know that he expected uh, so many people to get it right away. At the same time, when you look at how much resistance there was to the idea and how the average reader probably just missed it, like they missed many other things, I feel like it didn't change. Like, it's still a winning bet for him because if you look for it, (laughs) uh, you can find it. If you pay attention, you can find these things. And also, I mean, very clearly again, we know we see uh, the, the child being transformed uh, during the incarnation ceremony, we see that Griffith feels those feelings inside of him. Then when the boy shows up on the beach, it's very obviously the son. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's the way Casca and him have this instant relationship. Mm-hmm. Uh, the way he's interested in guts, in a playful manner, like a boy uh, with his dad. And even everybody's like, oh, they're like a family. I mean, they're really hitting us over the head with it. <laughs> So, and the ending of the episode, too, with Guts thinking about the child, seeing the yeah. child, like drawing attention to the connection between the child and the yeah. child. It's like, come on. It's, it's, uh, <laughs> it's very clear. And so the, you've got that little bit more that actually tells you, okay, well, it doesn't tell you, but at least it, uh, it led to me making that uh, deduction, I guess. Yeah. And, um, and yeah, that's, that's doable. And I feel like even if you know that, again, same thing we, I was saying earlier, even if you understand that from that point on, it doesn't spoil anything. It doesn't, it's not like it spoils a reveal uh, in uh, episode 264. It just makes it, I mean, I wouldn't say better, but, uh, yeah, just uh, it doesn't spoil anything. Yeah, I mean, spoil... It carries a different connotation to me as like as I've gotten older. Like to me, to, to a spoil means the excitement for something is ruined because you already know what was going yeah. to happen. But it's still extremely exciting to see these things develop, even if you kind of see the direction events are headed. But the excitement yeah. is still absolutely there. Yeah, because oh, yeah. The, the character's reaction is what you want. Yes. Yeah, and that's right. the thing. Like, oh my god, I don't want to talk about it too much, but like. I would have loved to have seen Guts' reaction to realizing the connection between these two characters. You yeah. Know, the Griffith mm-hmm. and Boy thing. Um, yeah. Yeah, for right. sure. Still a lot to talk about in this episode. Um, uh, so, sorry. Guts is very distracted. Uh, Farnese is saying, this is wonderful news, Guts, that, you know, she's talking about how Casca's mind could be restored. And Guts doesn't respond for a bit because he's preoccupied watching Casca uh, and the boy. Uh, Casca's yeah. feeding the boy. And then Guts is th- thinking about Skull Knight's words, and he gets this gloomy look on his face about there's no guarantee her wish will be your wish. And then he responds. Uh, and so everyone notices that Guts himself is distracted, that he's preoccupied by something about this boy. Mm. And as you said, it also affects uh, Farnese. You know, um, 
who is it that notices that Farnese? Oh, it's Serpico that notices that Farnese is uh, is watching Guts and Casca interact in a way that distracts her because she's seeing the the connection, if you know, between these characters. Yeah, she's trying to read a book, but it's uh, that situation where she's not reading anything. <laughs> it's not right. happening. I love that face that that Mira drew her having too, which is just like you can't quite pin down the emotion that that's going across her face mm. but i really like just how vague it is yeah 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 the emotion of uh well i'm uh, looking at the page but i'm not turning the pages yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a funny thing i mean it's it's i don't know it's it's a weird dynamic because in this scene you know they're acting like a family uh even though this child is kind of like a placeholder that completes the family look but to the other characters, it's just a, it's a placeholder. It's not really their kid. Mm. Secretly, it is their kid, though, you know? <laughs> yeah. So it's a weird thing where the readers may or may not know this is their real kid. But the other characters, it's just a stand-in making it look like they're a real family. And they are a real family, though. So it's just yeah. funny. Yeah, yeah, it's a, that's, it's a, it's a beautiful use of a, a comic scene mm-hmm. to actually get a, a point across. <laughs> yeah in this moment where they both reach out and grab the kid i love it it's one of the more memorable yeah. moments um for guts and casca to both leap for the boy i love that yeah it's great i mean even the stuff where gus is looking at the kid kid turns mm-hmm. his head around so gus look at something else and you look again yeah. the kid's looking at him i mean and I- <laughs> I, I got to hand it to Mura to be able to. I mean, we've. I, I feel like we've all had these moments. At least I've had them with sure. young children. And to be able to capture that, it's not easy, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, props to him for having really captured it well. Yeah. Kids like to stare. Kids yeah. don't care about boundaries. <laughs> um, there's a couple of funny, funny things. The one thing I'll say, I like to mention things that I noticed for the first time. And that is um, Serpico, sorry, Serpico, excuse me. Isidro asks the boy, uh, what's your name? Where'd you come from? And the boy immediately squeezes Casca tighter. And then Isidro reacts saying, oh, what a change in attitude. What a weird kid. It's like the kid is defensive about that kind of question. Even if, I don't know how much language he understands, but he might've understood that trying to ask who I am, that's that's a a sensitive issue for him because of who he is, right? He wants to be able to remain just a kid that's attached to Casca doesn't want to have to explain anything. Just wants no, to have this to moment. Keep a low profile. <laughs> he might also not trust these guys, these weird guys. He likes yeah. his mom and dad, but uh, who's this? Who's this kid? <laughs> yeah, with a flame yeah. dagger. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> uh, one of the moments. It's not something I've never noticed, but I, I really like it a lot. Is a. Uh, just a moment of appreciation for Puck sleeping uh, sumptuously on Isidro's face. Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> while Isidro's having a really bad time. And no matter how many times I see that scene, it just cracks me up, you know. It's uh, so good. <laughs> I wrote it down, just, too, because I, I feel like I'm missing what Puck is doing to Isidro that's causing him to have these bad dreams. <laughs> well, I mean, he's sleeping on his fucking face. Yeah, uh, yeah. You know, so I can't be comfortable. And I just like, because he's like drooling and he's got that uh, snot bubble. Yeah. So yeah. he's really sleeping uh, like a king. And Isidro is like, uh, uh, <laughs> what's going on? Isidro's just the mattress. Yeah. Yeah. But now that you mentioned Puck, it's it's really a, a great elf comedic uh, episode because you've got Evalera also getting stuffed yeah. into the hat on the previous <laughs> page. Yeah, which, which, twice uh, now. 
Yeah, we see we see a bunch more times afterwards, and yeah, it's a great moment because, I mean, it's uh, Jose Mura did that uh, kind of joke often where she's like, "You gotta fight for your man. You gotta fight to get him." Uh, <laughs> And uh, and of course you see uh, Shook is embarrassed, but what's funny is uh, Ivarela's essentially reading her mind, right? Uh, and basically trying to act as her, I wouldn't say mentor, but big sis or whatever. So yeah, uh, so yeah, it's it's pretty funny. And of course Isidro and Puck's reaction was like, hey, "What's going on?" <laughs> There's one more funny thing with Eva Lear at the start of this episode, just after the full page of Casca. Uh, or Shirke is saying Guts and she's like has a happy moment of seeing Guts so happy with an Eva Lear in the corner saying like you're happy now but you're gonna have to snatch him away from her again Casca yeah. <laughs> is suddenly his rival she's her coach yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah love rival yeah uh, I also the the last note I have about this episode is uh, Guts can't sleep Guts is the one at the, at the window looking out the window and kind of keeping watch you know, this is someone who slept in the day, fought at night for, you know, years and years and still is kind of forced to that duty, even though they have the charm. He's now on watch, basically. Mm. When does he sleep then? I guess still in the daytime. Yeah, he doesn't. I get the feeling he doesn't sleep very well in general. You yeah. know, he's he's not the guy who gets a good night's sleep. And with the maritime air, uh, mm-hmm. Bobby uh, keeping him up because of his wounds. So uh, you put all of that together, uh, yeah. Uh, I definitely got the sense that Guts is more of a power nap guy. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> I got to. 25-minute power nap. Yeah. Um, it strikes me now more than normal, I guess, but Guts thinking about the demon child. and At it, it first, it's a kind of a wordless exchange uh, of thoughts in Guts' head. He thinks back to Casca holding the, the child right when it was first born. And then he thinks about seeing it again. It looks like it's evoking sometimes in the Black Swordsman, for example, in that era when he's looking yeah. at the boy. And then, you know, he has, has this wistful look on his face. Like, you know, maybe a part of him, I don't know what it is. Maybe he miss, misses the kid in a way. I think that's what, I'm, what my takeaway is anyway. A lot of complicated emotions. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I feel like uh, it's funny. I, I've always loved that that specific uh, scene. Uh, him thinking back to the child and Casca's and that, you know, when you see that uh, straight on look from the, the kid to him mm-hmm. and he's some kind of downcast look, I feel like he regrets the way he behaved uh, during the Black Souls Money era where he was, like you said earlier, very adversarial towards him. They want him to come near him or anything like that. At the same time, I mean, it's his son and uh, yeah, it never stopped being his son. I, f- I feel like he always knew it was... And always kept that uh, to to himself. Uh, mm-hmm. For example, when when he first disappears, when he's born and he disappears, Casca uh, screams, of course, in volume fourteen, and we see that God's he's got tears in his eyes. Mm-hmm. And at that time, the Skullknight says, "So it was your child," mm-hmm. uh, because he realizes God's also, even though he was born in that state, and even though it was just an instant, uh, God still had that. I mean. He was overwhelmed with emotion, you know. So that's his son. Yeah. So uh, yeah, I feel like it's very. I don't know. It, like you said, it's a wordless, wordless exchange. We don't know exactly uh, what's going on inside his head. But to me, there's a a part of regret about not having had a better relationship with him, or mm-hmm. at least not having been nicer to him. I guess, even though. Even though the kid often showed up to try to guilt him uh, into changing his ways or t- 
teasing him. Right. Yeah, there's no, I don't think there's any other way to interpret that panel than, I mean, a regret or a sadness at not knowing, yeah. you know, where his son is, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, that's it for this episode. We end with the croc in the water looking uh, mysterious mm-hmm. and knowing in the water. Mysterious crocodile. Yeah. And we move to the next episode called Familiars. Uh, the mysterious fog passes over the sea, onto the beach, and towards the small cabin where Guts and the group have taken shelter for the night. As Guts observes the fog, his brand reacts, and Shirky wakes from her sleep, alerting the others as well. The tail of the crocodile drags along the beach, and Guts warns that something nearby is approaching them. The group readies for battle as a swarm of the creatures advance on the cabin. Serpico assumes that they're about to be attacked by wraiths, but Shirke explains that the odd of the creatures is closer to that of the attackers of the spirit tree. Guts agrees that they are more similar to apostles. Suddenly, something starts slamming on the cabin door, reducing it to splinters. Behind it is a huge crocodile that lunges at the group. Isidro wonders whether this is some kind of huge lizard, and Serpico identifies (laughs) it as a crocodile, a creature from a foreign land. (laughs) Riding itself and standing upright, the crocodile takes its spear and throws it at Isidro and Serpico, who narrowly miss it. Before it can do more damage, Guts hits it with his repeater crossbow, and the croc is killed by the volley of arrows to the head. Shirke observes that the crocodile is a familiar, or a magical entity that she identifies as an animal that is possessed by a spirit. Before they have time to consider the origins of the creature, the rest of the group of crocodiles descends on the cabin, spears at the ready. At Shirky's request, Evalera for- places four pieces of paper on the walls of the cabin with the symbols of the four elemental kings drawn on them. Shirky explains to the group that because tonight is a full moon, magic is most manifest, and despite this not being a church or a holy ground, she can still summon the four kings to the cabin, which would ward off the crocodiles to- as the trolls were in Enoch. Turning to Farnese... Shirke asks her to look after Casca and the child, and we see the boy look on with a mysterious expression. As the group prepares for the next wave of crocodiles, Shirke approaches Guts while he ties his sword to his hand. Shirke worries that he's still too weak for battle. Guts insists, of course, that he's still fine and that he and that will help him get back into practice. Shirke warns that the full moon is also a time when the human mind is most unhinged. As the crocodiles crowd around the entrance to the cabin, Isidro and Serpico jump into action, beating the crocodiles back with their swordplay and their magical fetishes. Isidro has an opportunity to practice some of his moves, with some help from Puck, who coaches him on incorporating his magic berries into his style. Guts quickly overtakes him, though, killing a swath of crocodiles in the signature style that we know and love, which just happens to be ideal for this encounter. However, the questions remain of how long he can continue to fight. Meanwhile, the child watches on in Casca's arms from the safety of the cabin. And uh, compared to the last two episodes, this was a lot more action-packed, a little bit less dialogue to, to sift through. So that was easy to write a summary for. And uh, yeah, I just liked how it kind of continued the conversation of what had happened in the previous episode, but with the addition of some of the previous dynamics kind of coming back and, and Mira reminding us like, hey, this is where Isidro is right now because we've just been talking about Shirke and Casca and Guts for a lot of the past volume. 
So, but at the same time, we get that little glimpse of the boy at the end just to show that that's kind of the crux of where the action is going to take place in the next uh, segment of the story. So, loved it. Uh, loved that Isidro got a little time to, to practice. And I liked how kind of Guts just, you know, swoops in and takes care of the Crocs and Isidro didn't seem like he was just sort of observing and and uh, almost like him and Is- uh, and Serpico were just like, oh, look at that. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I, I imagine everyone's a little on pins and needles as far as he's their big he carries fights. Right. And right. he was yeah. down for the count. Uh, and you recently. can really see it, too, with how Isidro was like struggling to kill a couple of guys and then Guts just comes in and, and yeah. blasts them. Yeah, How's like, our DPS dealer going to deal now that he's recovered from uh, <laughs> yeah. being wounded? It's his usual setup uh, for him to enter the fray where you see uh, Serpico and Isidro fighting and they're doing fine, but there's so many of them. And then uh, you see the cape flowing, just got stepping and blah, he just, you know, two page spread of him. Uh, slicing five at once. Mm-hmm. Same kind of deal with the trolls. Same deal with, for example, when they get to Skellig with the uh, scarecrows. I mean, it's just it's just great. You love to see it. It's uh, I wouldn't call it fan service, but it's just uh, fan favorite, right? Yeah. Guts doing what Guts does. Yeah. yeah. Shows his power, reminds us that, uh, like I said before, just because uh, they're a group, just because there's magic, just because whatever, Guts is still Guts. Guts is still right. badass. He's still the guy that can take down apostles with his big sword. And we love to see that. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, I would say a moment of appreciation for those crocs. Uh, <laughs> I feel like the establishing shot of the crocodile uh, when it enters the cabin is awesome. First showing yeah. off what a cool animal a crocodile is, which is, you know, fucking cool. I love crocodiles. You, you do like crocodiles. I love crocodiles, yeah. Uh, so I have a, a crocodile plush in my car. Hmm. So I love these. And then it stands <laughs> up. So it's already fucking cool. And he's really impressed. And Serpico yeah. shows us that he's a smart ass. No, oh, it's a... Animal for a foreign land. Yeah, very specific. <laughs> yeah. Then he stands up and he throws a fucking harpoon. And after Gus slays it, Shiriki explains that he's been magically possessed. And uh, we see that whole bunch of others are coming. And that's just that's just cool. Uh, I think introducing familiars uh, as an enemy uh, and enemies, basically, that's a cool magical concept. Uh, it feels very different from what Shiriki is doing because it's also not very ethical. Uh, so yeah, love it. Of course, love that fog. Uh, and Shirky and Guts boss hint at a possible relation to apostles in the fields they get from it, which means right. Ganishka, of course. So interesting that at that point, we already, like, with the fog and the fact it's a possession, there's some kind of magic going on. You're like, hmm, hmm, apostles, what's going on? Could it Who be? Who could be responsible for this? Yeah, exactly. I, I uh, think with <laughs> the previous volume, you kind of had to know, right? Because we saw elephant and yeah. uh, other animals. <laughs> Sorry, I can't think off the top of my head. Um, possessed. Well, we, did we, did we, we not the, already see a croc? Yeah, we saw the crocs as well. We start right. seeing the crocs come out of the water to eat one of Robin's guys. Then the elephant comes. So no, we we definitely know uh, they're from Ganishka. That's that was my point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You mm-hmm. you get between the fog, the connection to an apostle, uh, but yeah, we get 
how to say, Shuke's outlook on it, and she explains how it's done. And of course, as we as it goes on with the Macarenal, we see the the Christian priests, I guess, the casters, uh, who who explain a bit how it's done. So mm-hmm. it's one of those moments where uh, Mira sets up kind of that dramatic interplay of the characters not knowing something, but we know something. Yeah, and that that's something that you see a lot in Berserk, and it's. Uh, kind of exciting to because you want to see the character's reaction like as said earlier yeah there's also this cool moment because they don't know readers might have an inkling based on what we said but yeah they don't know what it is and Shirke is talking about how the talisman should prevent you know specters from being a problem so we know it's not that and Shirke says it's similar to what attacked Flora's mansion and Guts also says yeah it does feel like an apostle but then we have these four panels where the door busts down you know it's like sequential panels where you get closer to the door right as it explodes. It's just really cool, uh, suspenseful moment. Yeah. For the reveal, and it's a crocodile standing up, which I don't know about you guys. I've never really been like intimidated by a crocodile before. Uh, it's a pretty uh, intimidating looking <laughs> crocodile, though. When it's I, just- I'd love to get some Florida insight. Are there any Floridians calling in? <laughs> I lived in Florida. In my backyard, there were oh, some alligators. You? No kidding. Um, a little pond we had. There's usually a family of three alligators in the backyard. Not 50 or 60 feet from our, you know, back porch. But I wasn't really scared of them. This guy's scary, though. He big. Well, yeah. I yeah. mean, I've been very close to crocodiles before. They are, they are pretty scary. Mm. I mean, I, I, I know in Florida, it's just they're everywhere and so on. So people don't care. But, uh, I mean, they can they can kill you fast. Mm-hmm. And pretty horribly, too. Because they grab on your leg, take you underwater. Roll over to rip off your limbs and just drown you. So that's, uh, yeah, that's pretty bad. And now this one's standing up and has a harpoon. And yeah. that's, that, that <laughs> yeah. is intimidating to me, I, I think, no matter what. Yeah. By the way, I love the shot of Isidro just rolling right into the mouth of the crocodile. Yeah. <laughs> you think he's just doing... It's funny because Isidro's a, the character that knows how to fight. He's, he's pretty good for his age and for everything. But he's the kind of guy... Uh, how to say, he'll get overconfident and he's just try to wing it and just do bullshit. And then right. it ends up looking like that. Like he's rolling right into the mouth of the, of the monster and he has to jump aside and he even gets uh, coached up by Puck. And for once, it's actually useful. And uh, <laughs> I mean, it really does manage to get him to, uh, how to say, to ace his little fight. But uh, it's interesting to see that aspect because we could have just, yeah, Guts is mangling them and everything. But by showing Isidro's perspective, we see that these are fearsome monsters. And he even compares them to trolls, saying they're slower but tougher and everything. So I think that adds a lot to the general feel of the scene and the understanding of what it's like to to face up against this kind of uh, adversary. Yeah, I like that. It, it also made me think of just how much Puck has learned himself just by observing guts for for however long they've been together where he can kind of uh, give Isidro tips just based on that and I I liked like you said how they showed that guts is not just you know sweeping through all these guys because they're easy to kill it's like guts is really just that amazing yeah he's uh I mean he's beyond he's beyond the human level of uh, fighting that's that's yeah. that's what it comes down to so any adversary short of a member of the good hand or some gigantic monster like the sea god is going to be able to to take it yeah there's a um two part 
a little lore drop about full moons in this episode. The first is that on full moons, uh, magic is more powerful. And we yeah. see that immediately when Serpico uses his cloak and he notices that the uh, wind spirits are more powerful or more effective than they normally would be. Mm-hmm. Uh, and later, when she, when Guts is about to step into the fray, Shirke, you know, kind of mentions an aside to Guts that be careful. This is a, t- a full moon is also a time when the mind is more unhinged, most unhinged. So be careful. Don't, yeah, don't become a lunatic. Right, don't lose it. Um, <laughs> but both of those things add a little bit of nuance to our understanding of exactly what's going on with the boy. Why full moons for when the boy can manifest his powers? Yeah, uh, because Griffith is someone who's inhabiting a body of the boy. Uh, so you know, as a two sides of one being, effectively, you have to imagine there's probably a bit of wrestling uh, in terms of who owns the body at a certain time. No. So it's either or both that because the boy's power is more powerful during full moons, and because Griffith has less control during full moons, that's how the manifestation can happen. Mm. There's also another thing uh, Shirke mentions is that outside of full moon nights, uh, you can't use the formation of the four kings anywhere. Uh, it's got to be in specific places right? Uh, that have a strong spiritual energy or whatever. And so it's interesting because we, we see it being used here. Uh, we see it again uh, on the seahorse mm-hmm. uh, on the solitary island. But uh, yeah, it's interesting that it's, uh, how to say, it's, it's a limit to how you can use that spell, which might have played uh, later on. And it's also mm. uh, interesting to know that on Full Moon Nights, you can use it anywhere because uh, magic power is uh, is superior. Like you said, with same thing for Isidro um, Serpico, same thing for the berries. Uh, Isidro launches that literally explode as a cracks. I, I'm not surprised at all, but I, I am, I'm really impressed by Gut's ability to tie a knot like that with his teeth. <laughs> Yeah, uh, and, and you know, he uses his finger as well. But still, I'm not sure I could do that quite like that in, in the heat of battle. When you've got one arm, you learn to do things. I mean, same thing if you think of Volume Two when he's uh, fixing his gear. Yeah, uh, he's holding a little uh, screwdriver in his mouth and everything. It's uh, <laughs> he's got very- all that wilderness preparedness. <laughs> yeah, Boy very- Scout power. Not very convenient, but uh, he's got no choice. Mm. I do recognize that Berserk is as often a series where things have to die uh, because it's an action series. Uh, but, you know, the timing of this attack, it just seems like, what's the word? Like a ridiculous use of force for a tiny little house on the beach. You know, why this attack? Why this solitary house? Why did these cushions attack this particular house at this particular time? What do you think, guys? That is a good question. So there, uh, my my half answer is that this is a this is an invasion force, and you know it's the first wave of what's to come of the land force that's going to arrive. Right? And we know by volume thirty ish, there's a massive Kushan land force. Right? So this is like the first landing party to eliminate any possible resistance before the land force arrives. That's my thing. There, so yeah. anything basically, it's a big sweep of the surrounding coastline to make sure that they can land yeah. all these troops in the right time without any mm-hmm. resistance. Yeah, to tell you the truth, that was kind of what was in the back of my mind when I first read this. I just assumed they probably didn't think they were going to encounter oh, anyone no. who could actually come up against them. They were just assuming, like, everything's going to be fine. We're going to send these guys in. And probably there were multiple groups like these across the coast. Yeah, that's what I wanted to say is, like, for every one house that happened to have Guts and Shirke in it, 
there were probably dozens that had no resistance and just got decimated, right? They just picked the wrong seaside cabin then. Yeah, they really did pick the wrong (laughs) cabin to fuck with. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I think they were uh, basically uh, cleaning out the surroundings of Britannis so that when the big day comes, uh, there would be no surprises. They could attack from all sides. Uh, Of course, we also see that they end up... uh, Missing out, missing on on the. I mean, the way Griffiths hides his troops yeah. in broken down ships uh, before the the counterattack. So yeah, it's a. But yeah, that's probably what they were going for. I don't think they attacked specifically because they detected. Uh, I don't know which or. Right. No. 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 That, that's kind of what I wanted to get away from was that whole idea. Idea because I actually have seen that before. No. Uh, uh, well, definitely not. the last thing i have is (laughs) sidro was really excited about uh trying out new moves on these crocs because they are a little slower than normal so he can uh he's does his rolling attack does a finishing move with the fire dagger oh that was really cool yeah yeah oh that's it for me it's an action-packed episode um the suspense after Gut swings his sword and the, the kind of not knowing. And he kind of pauses, assesses the situation and says, all right, he can do this. Like the first big swing kind of tells all. Of course, mm-hmm. uh, as the episodes go on in this particular sequence, you can see it's not quite as easy as he thinks it's going to be to maintain control. Yeah. I do think the boy's look at the very end of the episode is also he's looking at his father yeah, and I feel like it ties to what's going on before that when uh, Serpico and Isidro and Puck are saying, oh, "Okay, God looks like he can fight, but," and it's like, "Yeah, will he stay in control uh, when right. he's armor?" Mm-hmm. And same thing, God is also he's ready to go, but can he, he handle it? And of course, we, I mean, it ends up being the case that he can't, and the boy has to intervene. Also, one last thing about the boy. In a few panels in this uh, episode, he looks very, how to say, alien a bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, sure. he's, he's got these giant eyes uh, and, and the kind of uh, very, how to say, a bit of an otherworldly uh, look and face to him, I guess. Which is, I mean, it makes sense. There's another one where, where he's in Casca's uh, arms, where, where, which is uh, what I'm thinking of. Yep. Makes sense because he's not, I mean, he's not fully human. He's more than that. So, uh, yeah, just interesting that Mura uh, chose to depict him like that. I mean, I will say, as kids are developing, their features grow at different rates. That's why sometimes kids look that they have big ears because they haven't the rest of their face hasn't filled out. That that absolutely does happen. So the fact that the kid has big eyes, they're big. Don't get me wrong, guys. They're big. You could fit a whole quarter in those eyes. <laughs> um, but it doesn't strike me as like that strange. But you're right. It does result in particularly because he has this mysterious look on his face at all times. It makes him look very odd for sure. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's more, it's just a way, for example, Griffiths will look otherworldly. Yeah. Uh, that's that's what I meant. But uh, yeah, as a factoid, the human eye stops uh, growing at uh, age five. Okay. It's already full size. Oh, wow. But the skull keeps growing until uh, age uh, 18. That's why kids look like they have bigger eyes. They literally have bigger eyes than adults relative to the size of their body. Got it. Wow, I didn't know that. One thing I didn't say, and I meant to say it in the last episode, was when the boy first appears, 
he does share a little bit. You kind of have to squint and see it, right? You can see that to me, I can see a guts resemblance, like the baby guts that we saw in the first few volumes of the series. I can see the resemblance between the boy and guts personally. And Casca too. You can kind of, with the hair, sure. it kind of bridges that mm-hmm. gap. Mm-hmm. It is really interesting. Sometimes her express, the boy's expressions as well. Like when he's surprised when he's grabbed Casca and he's a little apprehensive about Asidro. I don't know. It, it just, you can see the parental resemblance. Yeah. I, I mean, I think it's very clear. He, to me, he looks very, very much like his mother. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah, you could say, I mean, even the ears are kind of the same shape as hers and everything. So yeah, I mean, I, I, I guess, uh, yeah, there's some resemblance to guts, but I think very strongly it's to, to his mom. And even the, the hair is a obvious, uh, example. And it's interesting, I think, or rather clever that uh, Griffiths also has long hair. So yeah, right, it's right. easy for it to transition from one to the other. And uh, and yeah, it's just, I don't know, cleverly made. Yeah. I know Casca's just thinking, like, thank God he didn't get those weird pointy ears jeans. Yeah. I had never thought about that until you pointed that out. Wouldn't that be funny? It's like, why has this kid got such funny shaped ears? Yeah. Oh, wait, they look like guts. Yeah, I mean, yeah. if, if he'd had them, everybody would have been like, okay, it's just guts on. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we know. It could have been Gaston's kid. Oh, my God. <laughs> Gaston also had pointy ears, is my point. Yeah, but, uh, yeah, I don't think, uh, yeah, I don't think so. <laughs> Rest in peace, Gaston. Yeah. yeah. That is it for our podcast, uh, three at a time. That's the new way forward. This is a loaded volume, though. I, I really want to go, I wanted to do more uh, episodes, but that's all we have time for today. Uh, so look forward to the rest of this fight and the Makara. And probably that'll wrap up the next podcast before we start heading to Vertanis. Um, but still, lots more to come in Volume 28. Yep. Yeah. That's it for the show. Before we go, I wanted to give a shout out to everybody who's been diligently contributing to our Patreon. The proceeds for that go to Puella, our resident translator who right now has been working on translating a bunch of stuff, including all of the tributes to Kentaro Miura that were featured uh, in the end of The Last Young Animal that featured Berserk back in September of last year. She just finished the Koji Mori comic uh, about their time as friends. That's an excellent read if you have not checked that out yet. Once she finishes all of those, she'll be working on the big, long interview with the Miura that's in the artwork of Berserk catalog that's sold at the exhibition. So if you liked this show and you wanted to hear just a little bit more, we have many podcasts, but they're between uh, 30 minutes to an hour. Those are released monthly, and they're exclusive to Patreon members. Uh, So we just finished one on From Software's connection to Berserk and our love of 80s movies and and how that era of movies influenced Mira. Uh, Finally, I wanted to thank each of the Gold Tier subscribers who helped make all of this happen. These include Piran, M, Spacey Louse, Rombad, Dark Link, Dirtiest M, Walter, Modal Eternal, Thomas Lambert, Milbs, Jason, Asmer, Guts, Isha, Atokas, and M. That's capital M. That's a different M than before. There are two M's. That's right. Thanks to everybody for contributing. We really do appreciate it. And if you want to help contribute and get some of these awesome bonuses we've just talked about, you can go check out patreon.com sknet.